All right, it's What's Right with Sam and Ash, and if you were listening to the show earlier, you know this is a bonus episode to continue the conversation with our good friend, Robbie Haglund, Afghanistan veteran. What were you? You were a former intelligence analyst. Is that correct, Robbie? That is absolutely correct. I was a lot of things, but that's the big umbrella that, that kind of covers them all. Okay, well, perfect. Since there's military action going on in the world... It's great that we have you on. We talked at the end of the live show about basically how in the U.S. we don't even get to think about how Putin's thinking. We don't even get to look. He's our competitor, but we don't ever get to go into his shoes and go, why is he doing this? What might his next step be? Because as soon as you do that, you get labeled, as you said, a Russian stooge or you're one of them. And so now we kind of look at this problem and go, well, maybe if we had allowed ourselves to have that conversation and that discussion, we maybe could have prevented this or handled it better, de-escalated it more effectively. Um, we also talked about how um, there might need to be some sort of uh, face-saving move by the U.S. based on what we've said up to this point and where things have gone. And, you know, we have right now, Our Biden spoke earlier and he talked about the sanctions that were being imposed by the U.S. And your take is, look, sanctions traditionally are not effective. And you gave a great example of Cuba. Let's, in case someone missed the show, what is your basis on this of why you don't think you're hopeful the sanctions will work, but you're not confident in it? So, I mean, I'm always hopeful that if we're trying something to prevent nuclear war, um, I, I'm always hopeful it'll work. I, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't think the chances are great based on history. And the calculation that's going to be made here, well, we'll go back to Cuba really quick, but I think that's easy for everyone to see. We've tried sanctions in, in tons of different forms. And the main effect of our sanctions on Cuba have been to hurt the population economically uh, by some degree, whatever that is. Uh, but but they haven't, you know, risen up and removed Castro, which was kind of our, you know, or removed the current government, which has always been our goal. Instead, it's just hurt them, and it's given the regime ammunition to say, it's not my fault that things are so bad here. You know, I, it's not it's not my economic policies. It's not my policies in any way. We, you know, the, the United States is the most powerful country on earth, and they are sanctioning us. Of course, of course things are bad because of those evil people that are hurting our civilians. So that's what they get to say. We feed them that ammunition. Do you now— I think that's kind of frustrating because that's all we're looking at right now. But I'm with you. I'm hopeful that these economic sanctions we're imposing will be effective and that we are going to show by uniting with NATO and putting troops in strategic positions that we're not afraid of this and that we will, if if forced, step up. Yeah, so right. And and Biden, you know, made it uh, a very big point during his press conference to talk about how targeted these sanctions were going to be and how, you know, they were freezing the accounts of, of very wealthy, influential people. And so at that point, you know, you that pain is still going to trickle down to regular people. If we're reducing their GDP uh, or their income from trade, that that's still going to hurt the poorest people the most. 
And the calculation the Biden administration is making is that hopefully it, it hurts the people up top enough who have influence that they will seek to change the policy. But the calculation that those oligarchs, those those people who are, you know, in charge, second in charge after Putin, basically, uh, the calculation they're probably making is whether this uh, pain is going to be short term enough to be worth any long-term gain they might get from uh, expansion of Russia or by concessions that that maybe that they're looking for in any sort of peace talks, you know, to uh, restart their their energy pipelines or, um, you know, other other concessions that they might demand that would help the economy and in the long run help those oligarchs and also have Putin be able to look to to save face and say, hey, look, you know, I stood up to the United States and these are all the concessions we got and we're going to have, you know, better economic prosperity because of it. Now, I've got a question. You made a point in one of the prior shows that you and I did, the What's Right show, you mentioned how we were making, the U.S. was making a, fl- a fatal flaw potentially by not getting in between Russia and China. We were kind of polarizing them both toward each other, which is frightening. And Yeah, it's yeah, it's really scary and and you see the effects of that right now. Um, you know, in Biden's press conference, he was he was saying that he he was basically declining questions about whether he could work with China to hem in Russia. And I I understand him not answering those questions. I also hate that we're even in the position where, you know, we're, we're now maybe looking to China to help us with Russia instead of looking to Russia to help us with China. Because China really is, despite what's happening right now, the much larger geopolitical foe. Um, like, th- I, like I said in the, in the segment before, you know, the, the GDP of Russia, I mean, they're not, they're not a huge economy as much weight as they're able to throw around basically because of their former greatness, their size, um, the, the size of their military and all kind of the, the leftover military equipment that they have. So, yeah, I was just going to ask, do you consider China to be the bigger geopolitical foe based on their economy and their size versus Russia? Because I think a lot of people don't quite get that. They think Russia is the bigger fear because they see Putin and they always hear about Putin as being the threat. They don't ever hear about China. And so I always wonder, you consider China to be the bigger threat if based on the economy, not the media perception. Yeah, I, I think this is also a function of, you know, we had long COVID that we hear all the time about, but I think there's also a, a long TDS, long Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> and... These are people who, even though he is not president anymore, are still affected by things like, you know, the, just 98% of the Russia collusion narrative was a complete hoax fabricated because Hillary Clinton couldn't accept the fact that she lost the election. And it it went further than that. I mean, I, you know, I had people messaging me privately about how horrible it was and how I must hate Trump so much because he... You know, he's not doing anything about the bounties that Putin was putting on American soldiers' heads, you know, that, and this was a, a narrative that was happening, that Putin was paying money to anybody who could kill American soldiers in Syria or Afghanistan or wherever. And 
it, it was just, you know, I, I responded to that by <laughs> basically saying, look, like I, I, I do really hate Trump, but not for this fake reason that I don't, I don't trust at all until I see better info on it. And my instincts on that were right, because that has also been shown to just be a total fabrication. And the media is constantly in this state of like, of, you know, publishing a retraction on, you know, page Z100 of their newspaper, um, you know, right below the JCPenney yeah. ads and, and being like, oh, we made an oopsie doozy. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's crazy because most people don't ever hear that these things were totally wrong. Yeah. And just anyone that's listening and you don't know Robbie's background, Robbie, I think our social media team might have captured a description of you that gets it the best. And they called you a political orphan. Yes. And it, it and meant- that's, I was going to say, it matches that's your- stolen. T- I will say that's stolen from, from a great- great political satirist uh andrew heaton um who who runs something he calls the political orphanage so it's not it's something in my twitter bio but it's something i i lifted from him and kind of consider myself um in that same vein of thought that he's in and that's why i think your twitter handle is also very um telling it is at anti-party party party. yeah i am the anti-party party yeah. Anybody who wants to join, <laughs> feel free. We will praise and denounce both parties as they deserve it. Yeah, and that's why that's why I love having you on because you expose both sides and their hypocrisies and where they get it wrong and you just you're in it for the truth and look, that's what Sam and I do day in and day out. We we're in it for what's actually true, what's right, what's what matters and what's going on. And here I think this Russia story, this Ukra- the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is very confusing, very complicated. It's got a long history that not many of us are aware of or recall from learning in history class. And, you know, so many people just aren't tuned in to the day-to-day realities of of international conflict. Now, my one thing, we were talking about China and how we've almost kind of pushed Russia and China onto the same team when we should have kind of put Russia on our team to fight against China and to leverage China into being a fair player in the the world economy. But did you hear what China's assistant foreign minister had to say about uh, today's uh, attack? Have you heard it? I, I may have, but let me let me know which you're talking about. Okay, so she said to make a suggestion about the invasion, you may go ask the U.S. They started the fire and fanned the flame. How are they going to put out the fire now? Uh, she also uh, refused to characterize Russia's actions as a true invasion. And then um, China also believes Russia and the other parties have legitimate security concerns while also wanting restraint on all sides. Yeah, all of that is fair. I, I think we're objectively so, so much better than both Russia and China, but we keep scoring these own goals and we keep, we, we're we under this assumption, I, I feel like this is a carryover from the Cold War, when it was really easy for other countries to look at the United States and to look at Russia and to look at uh, the reality of being underneath the boot of either 
And to be underneath the boot of the United States is really not all that bad. To be underneath the boot of Russia is absolutely awful. Uh, and in that bipolar world, it was really easy to occupy the moral high ground uh, because it was always comparative. When it became a unipolar world, when it was just the United States that ran everything, then it's no longer it's it's no longer the United States compared to Russia. It's the United States compared to some imaginary world utopia. And that creates huge problems for us where we need to be way more careful about what we're doing so that we can continue to occupy that moral high ground in the minds of people around the world. And I think we have severely failed to do that over you know the last 20 or 30 years. Do you think the economic sanctions that were threatened and clearly dismissed by Putin because we threatened them before last night or today's actions... Do you think he's not afraid because China, they've already talked and they're going to work out a system where China will take care of them? Yeah, that's that's very, very possible. And Russia has a lot of negotiating room to do that, like we talked about in uh, not in just this last podcast today, but or the radio show today, but the radio show a couple weeks ago. There's a huge borderland between uh, Russia and China that is rich with minerals needed for tech, like cobalt and uh, a few other of these rare earth minerals. And, you know, so that that alone is a huge bargaining chip that Russia has. If they ever really need the help of China, they could say, hey, we're not going to dispute this so much anymore if you help us with X, Y and Z. Um, So that's a huge problem. I would say, though, you know, my my. Biggest worry is still um, as small as the percent chance is nuclear war because it is is just so absolutely devastating. I mean that's a that's a game ender. So even if even if the chance is tiny, it's something we should make our top priority. Uh, my secondary concern, though, uh, and, and this may affect the U.S. a little bit less, but I think when we talk about occupying the moral high ground, it's it's hugely important. I'm afraid that, uh, you know, we, we, after Vietnam, we decided that we wanted to make Russia suffer, make the Soviet Union at that time suffer their own Vietnam. And we baited them into uh, invading Afghanistan because we knew that they would suffer there the same kind of insurgency that we suffered in Vietnam that would just bleed them dry. And I'm the, the way we've been operating previous to this in building up paramilitary groups, um, it, no matter how awful they are, like these neo-Nazi groups we've talked about, part of me uh, is a little bit nervous that the, uh, you know, that the military industrial complex, that the defense contractors, that these people who only profit off of forever war that they're trying to, again, you know, we we got ourselves baited into our own Afghanistan in Afghanistan and have just left it. But now I wonder, are they trying to, to bait the Russians into something similar to what we experienced in Afghanistan by arming and supplying and setting the stage for an insurgency in a Russian-occupied Ukraine that will bleed Russia? Um, and would just be devastating to the civilian population of Ukraine, and that's where you know it, you might not you might not see directly the effects of it here in the United States. But you know, if you 
have, have any care for people around the world at all. It should just, it should absolutely horrify you. And if you care about, you know, the reputation of the United States as a moral leader, it should also horrify you that that is a possibility here. Yeah, I mean, that I, you bringing that up, you're the first person to actually kind of make, that I've heard, make that concern and raise that concern. I, have, yeah, I, I actually, I haven't heard anybody make it either. But, you know, just kind of watching the pattern, it, it seems like that's an obvious possibility. Oh, that would be absolutely terrible. And, it, and that's sickening. That's one of those things that when you think about it, if that is what's going on, it truly is sickening, especially who we consider ourselves in the in the world. I mean, as a, a leader of freedoms and human rights, and that's what we're, we're actually championing, it'd be absolutely terrible. Now, you, you're talking about the, the moral high ground. When I was listening to Biden's speech earlier today, he emphasized that our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict in Ukraine, but they would go to Europe to support and defend our allies. I think he it's a talking point where he wants to make sure that he can say, I'm not sending our guys into, our men and women and our troops into this conflict, but really they're it wouldn't be any different if the conflict ends up impacting those allies. Am I correct or am I splitting hairs? Help me out here. Yeah, so no, you're you're correct that so there is a there is a definite hard line in in my opinion between boots on the ground of uh you know of of normal infantry uh United States infantry and not having that. That is a huge line. But we neglect all of the things that can come before that. And even when they're saying there's no boots on the ground, I do expect that there are boots on the ground of CIA and Green Beret uh, training up paramilitary forces. Uh, just like, you know, we, we kind of claim that there's no boots on the ground in Syria, but that's not actually the case. We have people there who are trying to, uh, you know, train up anti-Assad forces, even if those people are affiliated with other people that we're fighting. And, uh, and so those are the the things that we get ourselves stuck in. Ukraine also, you know, while they have um, a whole lot of anti-tank missiles uh, from us and uh, they have, you know, they have stingers that can take down helicopters, they they really don't have any other means of air superiority. You know, they, they, have, they have some helicopters, but as far as fighter jets, I don't know that they have any. I, I, the disposition of their forces, I just know they're very light on uh, actual air power. And so when he's saying no boots on the ground, that makes me also wonder, is are, are we planning some sort of air campaign? And that's another thing that is just that's devastating to uh, to civilians, especially when we're talking about, you know, wh- who would our air campaign bomb? They would obviously, you know, be bombing Russian troops, but those Russian troops aren't going to be in proper bases. Those are Russian troops that are going to be, you know, scattered throughout civilian areas. So you're not, what I'm taking away is you're not impressed by the station, the statement he made when he said our forces will not be engaged in the conflict because you're going, I, I know what you're saying, but technically that's not accurate. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's great. It's, um, you know, it's a, a soundbite. If a if, yeah, and also like if a mugger's holding a gun and a knife, and they say, "I promise, I'm not going to shoot you," it, 
you know, there's great. Like <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that, but there's, there's still reason to worry even if they're being honest. Do you have any concern? Biden also said that there was no pl- He had no plans to talk with Putin. Does that concern you? Do you think it's better off that way? What are, what are you thinking? I, I think it's likely better off that way. Why? Um, because Biden is incompetent. I don't, I don't think, you know, as, as much as they must have pumped him up with something that let him read the teleprompter fairly decently today during his press conference, I, I, you know, Putin is not somebody that you, you know, you send the frosh soft team into or you or you, you know, send an adult old man to to negotiate with. I, I just hope that there are, you know, secretaries and undersecretaries who are a whole lot more capable and competent by Biden than Biden is and who aren't, you know, fully bought and paid for by defense contractors who can maybe turn the temperature down a little bit with with some of you know biden or some of uh, putin's subordinates I, I think that's really a much better hope for bringing tensions down than biden and putin meeting directly what about I, we I should send know. we should send can kamala you imagine? kamala can you, can, <laughs> maybe, yeah that might be the only choice that's worse but but can you honestly <laughs> imagine putin in in a room with biden hammering out some sort of deal and and having any sort of faith that this is going to be a good thing for the United States or for the world. No. No, I, yeah, I I really can't either and um you know, it's it's funny how much, you know, Trump was has been raked over the coals. I don't know if you've seen on on social media because he called uh he he gave a little statement on Putin and he called him savvy and said some of the actions he was taking were savvy. And, you know, they're basically saying, you know, this this is something that just uh, furthers. It, yeah, it makes Putin, you know, more aggressive. But it, it's funny because I remember Biden calling him a worthy adversary and somehow, you know, the Trump comment is is an absolute scandal. And the Biden comment. Biden comment is is just you know brilliant real politic statesmanship and and negotiating and I don't I it's we're we're living in a crazy world where people cannot just like analyze things for what they are. Well, it's a crazy world where I think people aren't applying real life practicalities to it. One of the things that I always said with Trump was he's a great negotiator. He knows how to anchor. Everyone would always be up in arms on social media about Trump and his egregious and outrageous and excessive statements. And I go, you guys, it's called anchoring. You throw your anchor as far to the right, the left, the up, the down as you need it to be so that you can get what you actually want. And what you want isn't even close to that. And that's because people have never had to really negotiate and they don't understand the concept of anchoring and and putting out a demand that is significantly higher than what you expect or what is actually needed and I think that's what's going what is you're talking about when Trump calls him a worthy adversary look the worst thing you could ever do to uh someone that is a bully is call them a bully and a meanie and that they're not really that like powerful the first thing they will do is, oh, really? Let me show you what I can do. 
Ins- yeah, I, and yeah, it's funny. You know, I got in. I got into it on on Twitter with somebody where you know I was talking about the difference here between Biden and Trump, and I, you know, for the record, I I am really still open to other explanations of why Putin was was so quiet during Trump. Uh, and why he took his actions during both Obama and Biden. I, another explanation, give it to me. I'm I'm open to it. But um, I I think, yeah, the real the real issue here is people see it through such a partisan lens that that the you know pushback I was getting, the argument I was getting was, oh, so complimenting Putin's a good strategy. And <laughs> mine, <laughs> mine was, you know what if. If compliments are the price of not having nuclear war, that's not such a tough call for me. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I'm willing to pay that price. I, I think that's better than yeah. <laughs> basically. That costs nothing. It, it scores Putin some some points back home. And if we can make Putin, you know, comfortable with his support at home instead of feeling like he's going to be ousted from his position of power by giving him nothing except for a few compliments here and there, that, that is a great price. Yeah. I'm with you. I I think that's the easiest thing we could do. If we just tell him he's great and he's doing fine and stay over there, do your own thing. And and we don't have any threat of nuclear war. That's a win for the world. It's an absolute win. And if he wants to help his country a little bit by giving Western Europe uh, a little bit cheaper energy, then that's fine too. And we can work with with them as well on uh, trying to encourage them to become energy independent instead of continuing to, you know, listen to Greta Thunberg and, <laughs> uh, and getting rid of all their nuclear plants and everything that's actually clean. And, you know, one of the best things that we've done is taken these huge steps toward energy independence. And we're, we're kind of taking steps back from that now. But that frees us up from so many foreign policy obligations that where we have to surrender the moral high ground in order to placate Saudi Arabia or whomever is giving us some cheap energy. Now, I've got one last question, and it kind of ties into what we were talking about is, do you when you're looking for a reason why Putin chose to take the actions he did now during the Biden administration rather than Trump's when arguably he had the best excuse and the moral reason to do it but do you think we the US pulling troops out of Afghanistan at the end of August signaled to Putin they want to stay home. The now is my chance. The U.S. is well, retreating. Yeah, it's, and and more than just that, we want to stay home. Um, and you know, a long time after Vietnam, we had what what pundits referred to as Vietnam syndrome, and they lamented it because it meant that the U.S. was way more reluctant to get involved in foreign conflicts. We, we were just a little bit gun-shy. I think it's a good thing for us to be gun-shy. But I think he's looking at that. He's also looking at we no longer have uh, a ton of bases and military equipment right up against his border in Afghanistan. So it's not just a, a, a fact of willingness, but it's a, a fact of actual materials that we have on the ground uh, that that could be used to confront him. So I, I think that makes a difference. I still think um, that it was the right 
decision to pull out of Afghanistan, even if it was uh, done in a very ham-fisted way. Um, and, you know, that it was a, a really, really poorly done. It was going to be awful. The results were going to be devastating no matter what. Um, but, you know, Biden, Biden managed to pull pull an F instead of, you know, the, the D plus was probably the <laughs> most that the U S could have earned on that, on that withdrawal. But he managed to, you know, get close to a 0% on it. I feel like that's what uh, he does. Yeah, no. And I mean, even Obama said, right. Don't, don't ever es- underestimate the ability of Joe to screw things up. <laughs> um, so it, it, this is, you know, this is a well-known, well-known attribute of, our president and it's a it's a scary time to have a president like that for sure um the the one thing i would say also is as long as we're kind of talking about his motivations aside from the u.s withdrawal of afghanistan i think it's just he's he's felt the walls closing in for quite a while uh as we try to push nato and uh nato sentiments even closer and closer to russia's borders and, uh, you know, the old Congressman Pat Buchanan uh, had an article uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that I, I think was pretty spot on. And it talked about, you know, what are Putin's motivations? And he called it Putin's Monroe Doctrine. And for those that don't remember, the Monroe Doctrine was this idea that the United States has spheres of influence mm-hmm. and that we're not going to get involved in European affairs anymore. But if Europe comes into our spheres of influence, then they better be ready to fight because we will, you know, we're going to be basically a, a very defensive force. And that doesn't just mean in the United States, but that means within our spheres of influence. And uh, to that point, uh, when Napoleon Third uh had you know a brief coup in in mexico and took over mexico mm-hmm. right basically he took advantage of of us being distracted uh at the end of the civil war and uh took over mexico for a moment and we sent down i think forty thousand troops something like that to the texas mexico border and uh they got the message and they left and i think initially that is what Putin was going for. I think he wanted to have a show of force and to say, look, I want my pipeline. There are things that I want. I want to have NATO and the U.S. stop aggressively putting these, uh, these you know, missile launchers in countries all along my border um, and pretending like you're just doing defensive work. Um, you know, we have these, uh, missile launchers that we, the Mark 41 missile launchers that we installed in Poland and Romania under Obama. And we claim they're defensive because they're anti-ballistic, uh, missile batteries, Yeah, but they can also fit medium range Tomahawk cruise missiles. And so, you know, we're, we're maybe obeying the letter of the law with some of our treaties, but absolutely breaking the spirit of the law because Russia knows we can just as easily throw some, some, offensive missiles into those same installations uh and and have an offensive war against russia and so you know they're seeing all of these moves and they're looking at their spheres of influence and us right up against their border and it you know from understanding putin's motive 
it's very understandable that he would be like, uh-uh, you guys need to quit closing in the walls where there are, if you keep pushing up to our borders, there are some borders that we are willing to defend and you're going to find out about that. And it's not going to cost you just our defending our border. If you keep going this way, we're actually going to invade some places maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if I were Putin, even if I were a good guy in Putin, that might be my move. And so, you know, he's he is a savvy operator, like Trump said. He is a worthy adversary, like Biden said. And, you know, with with the GDP of Florida, he manages to be this giant player on the world stage. And uh, I just, I think it's it's something that, you know, we could make him, we could neutralize that threat pretty easily by not aggravating him and by instead turning those ambitions the need that he has for for wins to solidify his own power at home you know turn that to uh a, turn that to china turn that against the those border lines have some wins where you know they're they're mining these rare earth minerals and they're getting you know some some alternate gdp that doesn't just come from oil or natural gas yeah, and if there was ever a time to really hope that Biden can find some like savvy perfume or something to make himself <laughs> uh, capable of, you know, I mean, this is serious stuff. He's got to he's got to lead our country, and I arguably lead a lot of people and, and instill confidence and, in some respect, a little bit of fear. And I don't know if he can do it, but you're right. He they his handlers prepared him well enough to stand at a podium and respond to questions just enough to get a message across. But I, I don't know if it really ultimately is enough. And I think you're right. It's not not capable of actually just sitting down and talking to Putin because he, he's just not fit for it. So we need to have good support and good people around him to help us through this. Now, Robbie, we started this little bonus episode talking about economic sanctions, how you're you don't think they you're optimistic they just historically don't work but you have an interesting take on kind of how sanctions could potentially work in the freedom convoy the trucker convoy is that right have i picked up on that yeah i think i think they're calling it the people's convoy okay just an awful choice of a name yeah well Um, people's in front of anything you know you look to what what's called people's around the world and it's you know the people's republic of china it's it's uh it's not usually good. But yeah, I, this this convoy, I have a bunch of concerns about it. One is just that, you know, I'm I'm a total weirdo, so I do listen to a couple of trucker podcasts. <laughs> and um and what I've gathered from that is that this isn't something that's being talked about at truck stops. It's not it's not being talked about on the CB radios. It is something that has been entirely organized online and that makes me a little bit nervous that this is, uh, you know, more of an astroturf uh, movement than than a real movement. You know, astroturf being the opposite of grassroots. Obviously, that this is fake grassroots uh, drummed up by somebody. And thank you for you know, explaining the, that. I I was the, like, I, I don't know where he's <laughs> going with this, but okay. No, and the reason I'm worried that it's astroturf is because it just seems so ill-advised. I mean. You have most of the country, especially the parts of the country that would be sympathetic to the convoy, are not experiencing, you know, any significant lockdowns, mandates, anything right now. I mean, 
We, I'm, in, right. I'm in Los Angeles where it's still kind of locked down and there's still a bunch of rules, but the people in Los Angeles aren't going to be, they're, they're not going to be uh, uh, sympathetic to this convoy anyway. Well, so right. the con- And remember, the convoy is kind of an offshoot of what started up in Canada. Right. This yeah, is, and it made yeah. sense there because because the people who would support the convoy were the same people who were also having these sanctions put on them. Uh, you know, they were having mandates put on them, and so it, you know, it made sense. You have a, a naturally sympathetic group of people, and you need that if you're going to go disrupt lives and and disrupt people. And this seems far less disruptive than the Canadian convoy. They're just, from my understanding, going to drive to dc and you know it'll be cnn will be covering it as you know the rebirth of of january 6th and they'll find uh, one truck with a confederate flag sticker on it and that's all they will show yeah yeah it'll be a truck you know that still has confederate flag mud flaps from when it wasn't as big of a deal to show the confederate flag and you know they were just too poor to replace them or whatever and it uh yeah that that kind of thing is what's happening. It's going to be maligned, uh, of course. They're going to find the worst examples of anybody there to highlight. And uh, and they're going to use it. I, I think the Democrats, if I were them, I'd be excited about prospects of this convoy uh, to pump up as, you know, the rebirth of January 6th as, as we start heading into midterms. But well, do I you think... think- I, I was going to say, since you called it an astroturf movement, do you think there's any inauthenticity from it? That it is actually maybe not genuine? That it's there all... Might, yeah, yeah, there might be. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of sincere people within the movement. But this is, you know, whether it's whether it's from our government or other governments, one of the things that we've seen from uh, from troll farms, bot farms in, you know, Russia, Moldova, these other places mm-hmm. that try to destabilize the United States is they would do things like uh, have, you know, a, a MAGA rally. They would organize a Donald Trump rally and across the street organize a BLM rally. And these would all be organized by bots, but real people would show up. And the fact that this is only happening online makes me a little bit suspicious that the origins are from troll farms, maybe even outside this country, that are kind of ginning people up into like, this would be a great idea. And their ultimate goal is simply more infighting in the United States and destabilization of our political system, our values and our, and our faith in, in our country. Yeah, and that's why you can't trust everything on the internet, folks. You got to do your research and you got to check your sources and their sources and then your sources, sources, sources. I mean, you never know what's going on and you don't want to be catfished into some political movement that's not authentic or, I guess, really genuine to what you believe in because you don't want to be caught up in that. Yeah, and it, and if any truckers are listening to this, here's an actual good idea. If you want, you know, the sympathy of the American people, find find what you want to protest and then do a targeted boycott of the richest neighborhoods in Washington DC because, you know, these are the people who should be disrupted. They're the people who disrupt our lives. And so disrupting our lives to protest the disruption of our lives I just there's better ways to do it. And um, 
you know, the, the reason I, I single out DC is, you know, for a long, long time, I mean, when we talk about the, the housing crisis that happened in 2008, when, you know, everybody lost just such huge value in their home equity, you know, who didn't lose any home equity, the, the people in Arlington, Virginia, the people in all of the suburbs surrounding Washington, DC. And when you, when you look at studies of where the richest neighborhoods are, the richest counties in the United States, depending how you measure it, because you know you can measure it by median income, you can measure it by purchasing power, all of these, but it's somewhere between six and eight of the richest counties in the United States all surround Washington, D.C. And what value are they creating? What value comes out of D.C.? I mean, you know, one of my, one of my favorite uh, phrases is that Washington, D.C. creates money the same way that ticks create blood. <laughs> you know, you can you can look at this at this little neighborhood outside of D.C. and you can say, wow, they must be creating so much value. Look how wealthy this is. Look how much money they're making. But they're not making any money at all. They are just extracting money from hardworking people throughout the country. And, you know, that needs to be confronted. And so, you know, if truckers want to have a, a, a real freedom convoy or people's convoy or whatever it is, I think the the better idea where you can still go about your job making your deliveries, just start refusing service to, you know, pick the richest zip codes all around DC and say, you know what, we're not going there anymore. Yeah, or like reroute all those deliveries to, I don't know, like a tiger pen somewhere in a zoo, somewhere, <laughs> you know, like, oh, if you want your Amazon package, please, uh, you will have to fight. Yeah, make them drive to real America for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, make it be a drop-off situation. We're not. We're no longer delivering to your neighborhood. You will have to go to the people's neighborhood that you serve. Oh, what a concept, Robbie. Well, I feel like we've solved a lot of the world's problems. We've given them some creative solutions, if nothing else. And we've had more time chatting, so it's been fun. Yeah. Well, thank well, you. Here's to, you know, crossing fingers for uh, things to get better in Ukraine and for uh, no nuclear war. My fingers and toes are very crossed right now, and as this stuff develops, we will probably have to have you on the radio show, What's Right with Sam and Ash, you know, the live and local show on 840 KXNT and uh, 2 to 3 p.m. every weekday. So be ready, Robbie. Have your microphone ready. Be ready to come on and join us as this stuff develops because I'm sure everyone that's listening wants to hear more from you and less from me or Sam. Always happy to do it, Ash. All right. Thanks, Robbie.